This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Just looking more at these Fed Minute headlines. Interesting, the story, I'm just going to read the lead. Federal Reserve officials step deeper into a debate over how high to push interest rates with the majority appearing to favor an eventual and temporary move above the level they deem neutral for the economy in the long run. So Sounds a little hawkish to me, but let's see uh, what our team thinks about that. Tim Mahidi's in the house, economist with Bloomberg Economics uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Am I reading it right? Absolutely, Carol. That is, uh, that's a hawkish statement. I don't know if it's more hawkish than uh, we had a couple of weeks ago, but I think they're, they're doubling down and letting markets know, hey, look, we are looking at one more rate increase this year, maybe two to three next year. Um, and more importantly, what's surprising to me in this is they're talking about going above um, uh, uh, going becoming restrictive, but there are no signs yet that inflation is picking up beyond two. So, so what they, are they seeing? Perhaps they're, they're looking. I mean, there's no wage pressure, so they're clearly they're looking at something and saying we're going to get inflationary wage pressure. I think there's this be, not belief, but there's you know economic evidence in past cycles that wage pressure as you remove uh, as you remove slack in the economy, you get wage pressure, you get inflation. That has not been the case, or at least not as strongly as you would have thought, given that we have an unemployment rate of 3.7. So it looks as if they expect the economy to continue to grow well above trend, and that eventually, at some point, we're going to get um, inflation above two. So we should point out stocks ticking a bit lower, bond yields taking a little higher, dollar ticking to a session high. At the read, I'm, I'm looking at our top live blog right now from one of our editors. Markets more or less taking this in stride. More specifically, the S&P down about one-tenth of one percent. Luke Kawa is saying, he's a Bloomberg Markets reporter as well, and says, hike until you break something. <laughs> uh, so you do wonder, you know... <laughs> Uh, what the Fed is ultimately going to do. Oh, Bloomberg humor. (laughs) Hey, let's bring in also Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News, also in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, Dave, Jason, hit it right. We did see stocks kind of take a little bit of a leg down, a little bit. A little bit. That's the key. I mean, considering what the market's been through in the past week or so, you know, it's holding up relatively well. It's not like uh, the idea of uh, the Fed's rate going above what they would consider neutral is exactly uh, a new concept. I mean, it is something that's been floating around. Maybe it's more explicit now that we have the minutes out there. But you know, there, there's been that thought for uh, some time, at least, that uh, you know, just pushing it to neutral wouldn't be enough. Well, and, and Dave... It- it's a really good point that this has been out there in the markets and and Tim Mahidi is still with us. You know, we've talked a lot about the communication from the Jay Powell Fed so far, and they have been, you know, on a relative basis, pretty transparent. So no surprises here. Presumably, if you're sitting at the Fed, this is the market reaction you want, which is essentially like, eh. Absolutely. I told you so. It's kind of like, right, we've been feeding you this, been feeding you this. In Fed speak, that's the expected reaction. 
Um, but yes, I would say this is exactly what they want. Um, that's why the communication strategy changed earlier this year, uh, specifically in the in Chair Powell's speech in August at Jackson Hole, when the markets went a little crazy and when he said, well, we're, we're moving away from our star and these stars are not navigating by the stars. But I think what happened is that people overshot and said, well, they're not looking at these equilibrium variables at all. And you can see in some of the comments today that they're still saying we're looking at these things, they were, but we removed – or I think their, their reason for removing um, a lot of the discussion around this was to get rid of a point estimate, get rid of a, a destination mm. so that they can give themselves some wiggle room as we approach these equilibrium rates and maybe even go above. So I do think that this is what they wanted to see from the markets. I expect um, the communication strategy to be uh, a little bit um, – I'm expecting to communicate more over the next couple of months as we kind of acclimate to their new kind of greater area of where we're going. Well, and going back to market reaction, I can't give away a story, but there is something interesting coming up in the magazine that takes a look specifically at kind of – the markets and the relationship between bonds and stocks. And, uh, you know, Dave Wilson, much uh, of the time coming off of the financial crisis, we often saw stocks and bonds trading in tandem, which is something unusual. It looks like now the markets, investors are saying, okay, we've got some inflation here. Maybe we're going to get a little bit more. Right. I mean, there and has understanding been, that there's differences between stocks and bonds and yeah, how they react. That kind of a shift has been going on. I will tell you that there's a, a chart floating around the Bloomberg terminal. I actually put it out on my Twitter feed earlier at the one day looking at uh, relationship between bond yields and what are called earnings yields. So basically mm-hmm. take the uh, price earnings ratio, of the S&P 500, turn it on its head and track that in relative terms. And when you saw stocks fall late January, early February and also in March and then in the past couple of weeks, you saw the gap between those two as uh, the narrowest this year. So it's clear that people are paying attention to sort of this cross market tension here. So, Dave, while we have you here, just quickly give us your read, ex-Fed on the markets today after a few, shall we say, up and down days on the U.S. markets. <laughs> right. And it started out as a down day and sort of worked its way back. You can find the pluses if you want to in terms of uh, results. Maybe the biggest one, United Continental and the airline raising its uh, 2018 profit estimate for the third time this year. This is an industry that clearly has pricing power. I mean, given what United had to say and given the fact that they're facing something like uh, a 30 percent increase in jet fuel costs from a year ago. And that's one of their biggest expenses. And nonetheless, they're anticipating uh, revenue growth uh, even after those costs uh, are come out of the equation. So, right. you know, it, it's definitely a situation that's working in favor of this industry. Here. Tim Mahidi saving you 20 seconds since this is uh, the Fed minutes kind of day. Um, sure. what, what should investors know? What's the most important thing quickly? Actually, thank you. I was about to jump in. I think trade is something to watch. So we've got these hawkish minutes saying we're going to go above neutral. However, we have had very little time to assess what's been a rather large round of tariffs, potentially more tariffs coming down the pipe. The tariffs that are already in there are escalating from 10% for a rate of 10% to 25%. I think this could actually finally have an impact. Right. And I think that's a downside risk to, to GDP growth in the third quarter and the fourth actually fourth quarter and that could that could look this make this look a little stale when we get to november december and the fed did say trade policy seen disrupting business investment plans so that's when we start to see companies making decisions based on concerns about trade and that's one of those things that we expect
effect that they are hearing as they talk to the Fed presidents around the country. We've heard Jay Powell yeah. reflect on that at his last press conference, I believe. He mentioned that that's what they were hearing as CEOs mm-hmm. and others talk to those Fed presidents uh, around the country. Uh, Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg. You'll be back with us with your chart and stock of the day. Tim Mahidi, get back to work. Stop jawing with us and uh, <laughs> go figure out uh, these Fed minutes with the rest of the Bloomberg uh, economics team. Thanks to you both for joining us. And I know it's going to be... Day, one of Carol Masters' favorite songs. What's and not to love? Little Bill Withers. I know. And, and music to the ears of anyone who's invested in Netflix today because they really knocked it out of the park uh, late yesterday after the close. Shares gaining yesterday after market. Shares gaining again today. Dan Morgan, vice president and senior portfolio manager down at Sonova's Trust Company in Hotlanta, overseeing about $14.7 billion. Old friend of ours, Carol, joining us on the phone. So, Dan, what do you make of this? This is a far cry from what we saw last quarter. Well, you're right, Jason, and I think uh, we spoke about it uh, three months ago on a episode that we did together. And Netflix obviously, uh, you know, revised their guidance going into what was now the third quarter. It's kind of interesting, Jason. They came in and revised guidance down last second quarter. The consensus was around six million, and then they come in on this quarter with six point nine million. So it's almost like they guided us down, then they blew away. The previous guidance, and uh, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. But wait, wait, um, that's uh, interesting because does that mean they didn't really? Did all of these subscribers come kind of later in the quarter, or did they not have a really good grasp on their subscriber growth? What does it say? Are to they you? sandbagging a little? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, are they sandbagging? Exactly, Jason. You know, Carol, it's just interesting. It's it's hard to really say. We never really got a firm response back from them, if you recall, uh, back in the second quarter in regards to, you know, why did they miss the numbers so much? You know, we talked about the world. Cup. There were all these like moving parts of reasons that it could happen. And, you know, they just kind of came out and flat said, hey, we just didn't hit the number right in terms of our expectations. But, you know, it's, it just seems odd that they guided down so low and then they kind of set the bar so low and they come to just blow away everything. It's just very interesting. It's kind of what Apple used to do. Right. You may remember about 10 years ago, they were they were really good at that, <laughs> lowering the bar and then blowing the bar away. So maybe they learned something from the guys at Apple. There you go. So as you have had a chance to dig into the numbers a little bit, Dan, and what do you see there that gives you a sense of why the shares continue to just go, to use a technical term, just go nuts today? Well, I mean, obviously, you mentioned earlier, Jason, the subscriber numbers, uh, not only for the third quarter, but then, of course, the guidance they gave us for the fourth quarter right. was unbelievable, 9.4 million. I mean, it just blew away everybody. Um, so that was a very good number. They were burning cash flow at about $860 million. Um, that wasn't too bad, considering the consensus, I think, is about 3.1, 3.2 uh, for the year that they're going to burn. They, they may not hit that number. Um, I just think it's just enthusiasm, you know, surrounding. Uh, some of the new content that they have, some of the new shows, and it seems to be paying off. I think they had 84% of their overall new subscriber growth came internationally, uh, which we've talked about before. Uh, that's kind of a conundrum for them because the cost associated with international uh, subscriber ad is substantially greater than domestic. Um, but, you know, they seem to execute uh, really across the board, and, and 
the free cash flow burn wasn't quite as bad as maybe people might have thought. So, you know, I, I think it's just a storm, you know, that we have to look forward to coming down the road in regards to this, this Fox-Disney deal. Right. Uh, that's going to reel out in 19. That's really going to be the big thing for them to, to look at down the road. Well, and what's interesting about the share price, Jason and I were breaking down the numbers down last night after the closing bell, and the stock was up, I think, like 13 14%. It came out of the gate pretty high today, up more than 9%. We're now looking at about a 3% gain. Uh, is it just because of the market tone overall, or are there some – what is it about it that maybe says, okay, this is great, thank you so much, this is what you did last quarter, now I'm going to see if you can sustain it? Well, you're right, Carol. If you look at the high just today, it was you know over around 375, and now we're dipping into 360s, right? So right. we've lost a big – chunk off the high. I think you've got a lot of moving parts. You have just the sentiment in the market right now, you know, and you've talked about it on your show in the past in terms of yields going up, worries about all these things that could be out there in terms of, you know, affecting the stock market. Um, It seems like the bar is kind of high right now in tech. I mean, we've got you know, we had IBM that wasn't so great, right? right? So it's like now, as you guys know, we're going to But IBM is at Netflix. Come on. Yeah, yeah, I know. But we're going to move into next Thursday. We've got a slew of Google and Amazon and Intel, Microsoft, and Twitter all coming in. And it just seems like these companies kind of have to hit all of their matrix uh, to get a good positive response. It seems like the, the tone of the market, to me, that kind of has a little bit of bad taste in its mouth, yeah. and it's just trying to wring it out. And, and the Netflix number is great. But like you said, I think if the tone was better in terms of market, we'd probably be, you know, back over 400. We would have really popped it up, you know, 40, 50 points. Right. All right. 20 seconds, Dan. What's the one name of those names that you just mentioned that you're most interested to hear from next week? Well, I want to hear from Amazon. Obviously, Jason, you and I have talked about that stock in the past as the leader in infrastructure as a service, you know, with AWS. It'll be interesting to see when they come out with that number, along with Microsoft, in terms of is cloud still the place to be in technology? Good stuff. All right, Dan Morgan down at Sonova's Trust Company in Atlanta, vice president and senior portfolio manager there. So Bitcoin, Carol apparently wants to give me some, but here's a great, just a nice phrase from this story that we're about to talk about. Bitcoin, unregulated, notoriously volatile, and sometimes stolen by hackers. That pretty much sums it up. Yes. It's a great piece on the Bloomberg Today by our own Janet Lauren, endowments reporter, joining us on the phone here in New York City. So Janet, Bitcoin... Alumni want to, you know, some have hit the jackpot. They want to give some money to their alma mater, honor them with some Bitcoin. Not so easy. What'd you find? No, it's not so easy. Um, Schools have to do a little investigating. It's not like accepting cold, hard cash or stocks where you can get liquidated very quickly. Um, Bitcoin presented a bit of a challenge to the University of Puget Sound a few years ago when one of its alumni, uh, Nick Carey, who started blockchain, uh, wanted to share the wealth. And he wanted to give 14.5 Bitcoins to them worth about $10,000. So they did a little... Well, I was just going to say, and and so, you know, that would be a situation where, especially if you think about the run-up that it has had, I'm guessing his idea was not dissimilar to giving stock and watching it appreciate, but as you say, they weren't quite ready. Well, typically when schools get gifts that are not cash, 
uh, they liquidate them. Ah. That's just typically their policies. They're not holding on to tons of real estate because then somebody would have to manage it. They're not holding on to vast art collections because they may not have the space. They'd have to pay to insure it, and to, and it may not fit their collection. So schools actually do say no to gifts um, occasionally. But in this case, they just didn't have a way to accept it. So the University of Puget Sound had to figure out how they could take it because it's not like, again, taking cash. Um, did they figure they it out? Changed. Did they figure it out, Chad? They did. They did. Um, they used a third-party uh, company called BitPay, and BitPay basically took it and sold it for them, and they got the cash. Um, Nick uh, transferred um, the the Bitcoin through, you know, he got a QR code on his laptop from BitPay, then he took a picture of it on his phone, and then he used his blockchain wallet and transferred it. Now, they had a little bit of a snag because the day that he was transferring it, there was an ice storm in Atlanta, and it took a little longer than possible, but they did get their money, and they got their cash, and they were able to uh, use it for their annual fund. But other schools, you know, they haven't accepted it, and, you know, some of the biggest schools that you might think have taken it, haven't, such as Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. Um, MIT and Cornell have taken donations. Um, it's interesting. Schools don't really want to say much about it, how much they've taken, how long they've been taking it for. They're just saying, you know, the bare minimum. And, you right. know, it, it is it is a bit, um, you know, nobody knows a lot about it in, in terms of who's giving it. Now, in the case of Puget Sound, it was their alum. They knew exactly who it was. It wasn't somebody that they didn't know anything about who was just a random person. And, you know, you're, you're going to feel more comfortable, especially if it's an alum that you've had a relationship with taking it. Well, and you've written, Janet, about, and our colleagues have as well, about this sort of uncomfortable relationship, even as an investment, right? Cryptocurrency as an investment. Gail, I believe, is starting to embrace this at least a little bit, if I have that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. And so do you feel like schools are getting more comfortable overall with crypto, or are they still very much taking a wait-and-see approach? Well, you've got two two sources. One is whether they're taking it as a gift, yeah. and the other is whether they're investing it in the endowment. And, you know, in, endowments are heavily invested in venture capital, as we know, and they may be exposed to it indirectly through their venture capital investments when they're invested in, you know, the blockchain technology. So I think that is probably very common. Uh, you know, what we reported earlier this month about Yale, you know, investing in a crypto fund, that is still to be determined. Um, you know, I think after that story came out, a lot, there was a lot of discussion that, wow, if David Swenson is dipping right. the toe, you know, perhaps you may see right. others try to look at it. Um, and David Swenson, as you know, is the legendary um, CIO at Yale who's been yeah. there for over 30 years. And, you know, he was among the first institutional right. investors to look at private equity and hedge funds as an asset class. Well, good so, stuff. Janet, listen. Don't give it all away because we want everybody to, to read your story. Either go to the terminal or pick up the magazine this week. Her story is featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week mag- magazine out this Friday. And, of course, you can read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Janet Lauren, endowments reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone here in New York. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I spoke to Joyce in the morning. I spoke to Joyce at night. I spoke to Joyce in the afternoon. Well, it's fair to say we may be running out of marijuana-infused songs, Carol, but it is a big day uh, in the world of weed. 
the Canadians legalizing marijuana on a federal level. To help us understand what that actually means from an economic and business perspective, we turn to our man up north, John Ehrlichman, anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, also a correspondent for CTV National News, joining us on the phone from Toronto. Uh, So, John, give us the update, man. Well, I think, Jason, you just gave it to me. Like the new business, maybe it's more songs. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's, there's, a, there's a great opportunity there. I think we um, I think but, we have hit upon a little side hustle for you and me, John. Just write some pot songs. <laughs> Be careful, those cannabis uh, entrepreneurs are all over the place. They're probably hearing this right now and getting on it. Um, here's, uh, here's what's going on today. Um, now, remember that when uh, Justin Trudeau, made it part of his pledge as prime minister to legalize marijuana. Um, He decided in the end that he wanted province by province, uh, everybody to decide how they wanted to do this. So we've been watching it all unfold. And and as as some people might have seen some of the images, um, it's kind of like one of those Apple launch days right. <laughs> uh, when the products are in stores, in all seriousness, because you're, you're watching for the retail reaction. And, and, and in some parts of the country, there have been stores opening and lineups. And in other parts of the country, there are no stores because, for example, I'm here in Toronto in the province of Ontario. It's about 40 percent of the weed market. And there was a change in government and a change in direction on what they wanted to do, which long story short meant they couldn't get stores open in time. So the only way to really buy legal weed here is online. And so when people start buying weed online, the big question is, can these cannabis companies that have had red hot stock prices and sky high valuations, can they distinguish themselves from each other? Is there like a Coke versus Pepsi difference? Uh, People have been surfing the sites today uh, you know, your song there reference, you know, having a couple of joints. That, that's really what it's like right now because there, there, there are no edibles. There's no, no sort of fancy cannabis products yet, but there's people that almost like they might go buy, you know, a six-pack of beer or something like that. People right. seem to be looking around for some, some, in all seriousness, deals on, you know, a couple of, a couple of joints. So we won't know for a good few months whether or not these valuations for these stocks are justified. We'll have to wait. Well, how, how quickly, John, will we see other types of products, um, cannabis products out there on the market? Because as we, you know, the reporting has said, as you said, too, the, it's the fluffy, dried buds familiar to many a college student that that's what you can get right now. But it might be a while before we start to see the edibles, the topicals, the beverages and so on. Yeah, and you know it's a great question, Carol, and it's a sophisticated market, and that's what a lot of the, the the business leaders of these cannabis companies have been saying, and they're prepping for that future. And you know, now that it, there's nothing wrong with me being in Canada, saying you know I'm going to go out and buy some cannabis, but like just if you if you know people who use cannabis on a consistent basis today, oftentimes. They're actually fairly sophisticated users. Mm-hmm. Like you know, um, the, 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 the products have come a far way. Let's say uh, since high school, the um, the health minister in Canada said today it's still probably a year out, but that's going to be an important transition because once people have had a little fun with you know the first couple of weeks of maybe testing out the market, they're going to have to ask the question like, what does it take to move me from my bottle of wine to cannabis right and so a lot of these companies say hey we've got this fancy ip so 
I would say a year from now is when we'll start to see those products. And, and remember, obviously, we've already seen some of these products uh, in, in the states where cannabis is legal. And, and generally, the sales in those areas are a lot stronger. Right. And we also have seen, you know, you mentioned the, the stock prices. They've gone bananas, uh, to use a technical yeah. term, you know, have scaled <laughs> back uh, a little bit uh, as we've seen investors become a little bit more uh, discerning. So certainly an interesting one to watch. And we will count on you to bring us the latest and greatest. As always, John Ehrlichman, anchor for BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, joining us from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where see, as of today. Well, did you see Dave Wilson? He actually has a, a cute story on the Bloomberg about uh, one took over the line. And he talks about that, of course, being a hit single back in the 1970s, but basically looking into whether or not it's time to buy pot stocks. And he talked with someone who's written four books on valuation who basically says, nope, wrong time to buy. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I got the book for you. All right, now we're going to talk about one of our favorite stories in Business Week this week, one close to my heart as a longtime resident of the state of Georgia. Margaret Newkirk has the story. She's a national reporter for Bloomberg on the phone from our Atlanta bureau. Democrats pinning their midterm hopes on registering new voters. This is a turnout story for sure. Uh, Margaret, great to have you with us. Carol and I uh, had the chance to chat with Margaret a little bit earlier for our weekend show. Tell us what's going on uh, down in Georgia, because this is a race that everyone is watching. Well, this is the governor's race between uh, Democrat Stacey Abrams and the Secretary of State, the Republican Brian Kemp. And uh, Abrams, if she wins the race, this has been for well over a decade a very Republican state. We haven't had a Republican governor since 2002. And uh, if she wins, she'll be the first African-American female governor in U.S. history. And her campaign depends on turning out large numbers of minority and young voters. Well, and, and this and, is what's interesting, right? Because you talk about in your story mm-hmm. about this organization she has created called the New Georgia Project. And it's really been what? About signing up minority voters, correct? Yes, across the state. And it's starting in 2014. And her, her, what's her thinking here, though? Is it a case of, because you have some great numbers in your story about all the people moving into Georgia over the last decade or so, uh, how many of them are minorities, and if you sign them up to vote, what could be potentially the implications come, certainly, midterm elections? Okay, so the numbers that uh, Abrams was looking at when she first started this project was 1.5 million uh, newcomers to Georgia of which 80% were minorities. And then there were 700,000 unregistered minorities. And the margin of victory for Republicans statewide here has typically been been about 250 to 300,000. So that's, they went all across the state. They've been doing it ever since, just registering, registering. Now, it has yet to pay off. It did not pay off in 2014 or 2016 statewide. Um, so it's really kind of cool. This is the year, right? It's kind of cool, Jason. The thinking is, you sign up these these voters that aren't registered. Um, 
a lot of minorities. I'm assuming a lot are Democrats and whether or not that would be the gap to make the difference between an election swinging, you know, from a Republican to a Democrat. Right. And underneath all of this, and Margaret does a great job explaining this in the story, are these demographic trends that have swept across the South, Atlanta obviously being a primary example. So, so Margaret, tell us about some of the other races across the Southeast uh, that people are keeping an eye on as well. Well, um, I'll start in the Southwest, Texas, um, because they've been also hoping for a demographic flip, turning that state blue for a couple of years now. That would, um, if that if that turnout happens, that would help Beto O'Rourke, Florida, Andrew Gillum, the African American mayor of Tallahassee, running against a Trump endorsed Republican DeSantis. It would help there, and um, definitely in Georgia, and I think there's a. Another race in Maryland, although that one is not as close as, as even the one in Texas. It is interesting to watch, Carol, sort of, you know, what the blue wave yeah. that people keep talking about uh, may look like. You know, there's a legal fight going on in Georgia around this race, Margaret, we should point out, as well as the twist that as the secretary of state, Brian Kemp is ultimately responsible for a lot of the mechanisms around voting, right? Yes, and, and there's been some call for him to step down. His argument is nobody wanted him to step down when he was running for a second term as Secretary of State, but um, there certainly is a call for that now. One other thing, too, and you talk about this New Georgia project, right, that they have talked about what submitting uh, almost a quarter of a million voter registration applications to the state since 2014. Um, we don't know exactly how many of those have been added to the voter rolls, Correct. That is correct, right. When they first started the, the year um, 2014, they got probably less than half of them were actually registered by the time of the election. And it was various problems, whether it was a problem, a real problem, or um, they, they use a system here where they are very strict about it has to exactly match your um, driver's license database right. or the Social Security database. And give us a sense of enthusiasm level at this point around the midterms from where you sit. Um, signs everywhere. Uh, the ones I see are, because I'm in the city, are mostly for Abrams. But the, the big sign was the turnout Monday. This was the start of early voting, and it was triple what it was in the last governor's race. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing stat uh, in and of itself. Margaret Newkirk, national reporter for Bloomberg News down in our Atlanta bureau. Thanks so much for joining us. You can check out that story. It's in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine out Friday. Read it now on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
It is time for the drive to the close. Janet Rilling is with us, head of multi-sector fixed income at Wells Fargo Asset Management, on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Janet, good to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm going to cut to the chase because I'm always interested in investment strategy and what folks are doing. You like, or I think some of the areas you're looking and where you see some opportunity uh, opportunities are financials and communication services, which just happen to be the two best performers in today's session. Why those two areas? Yeah, so I I focus on investment-grade corporate debt, and we find that the financials and the communications are areas where there's some opportunity for outperformance. Um, Places that we're looking are the banking area. Um, We've seen stable asset quality and lower leverage as compared to prior to the financial crisis. We think that's attractive. And then the life insurance area is also an area that is benefiting from the current interest rate environment. In addition, they're not as active in M&A as we're seeing in some of the other sectors. So event risk is a bit lower, which is a positive for a fixed income investor like um, like our group. Um, the other area that we favored is communications. Um, sectors there that we're looking at is um, the cable area. Um, that sector is known for its strong cash flow and reasonably stable revenue. Um, certainly, it's been under some pressure in the fixed income markets because of the secular issues, you know, driving, cord cutting, and those types of um, headwinds. But we feel that the yields have risen to compensate investors for that risk, and the management teams have been um, really focusing on that challenge and directing their business more toward connectivity um, and less away from the, the, the video business. And then the last area in communications that we like is telecom. This is more of a value play in the investment-grade corporate market. Um, this sector has gotten beaten up partly because of operating results, um, but also because they issue so much debt. They just have a lot of bond outstanding. But again, the yields have uh, really adjusted to reflect this fact, and we think there's an opportunity here. Um, This may not be as long of a a play, but currently we think there's value. Uh, Janet, one of the things that I know you have talked a little bit about is, you know, where there are some vulnerabilities in the market. M&A is an area um, where, you know, folks have spent a lot of time talking about how sort of long in the tooth we are in that uh, cycle. How does that play through to the investment grade credit world since that's such a key uh, element in deal making? Yeah, so certainly in 2018, we've seen an elevated level of merger and acquisition activity. And from a a bond investor standpoint, that doesn't necessarily have to be negative, but it's also not necessarily positive. What we look for is um, how much debt is being used to fund the transaction. And what we've seen this year is it's becoming more common to fund with heavier levels of debt. And, you know, in a normal environment where, you know, you have time in the economic cycle, oftentimes that playbook is used with the intent to pay down debt um, before the economy turns. What has made this more an area of focus for investors is, well, the economic cycle is long in the tooth. We've been in expansion for a long time. And if these companies are unable to reduce their debt before the economy turns, they may be saddled with these higher debt levels going into a recession. And that certainly won't be good for credit investors. No, indeed. Janet, thank you. We're going to leave it there. Janet Reeling, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of Multi-Sector Fixed Income over at Wells Fargo Asset Management on the phone from Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.